The Metropolitan Opera Guild is the premier arts education organization dedicated to enriching the lives of children and adults through the magic and artistry of opera. To learn more about the Guild's many exciting programs and events, please visit metguild.org. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Metropolitan Opera Guild podcast, episode 22. I'm your host, Naomi Baratera, and I am part of the Lectures and Community Engagement team here at the Met Opera Guild. The goal of our podcast is to share knowledge and insights into the operatic art form, and to do this, we draw our content from a variety of different educational programming that we have going on here at Lincoln Center in New York City. Today's episode is drawn from our Talking About Opera archives and focuses on Donizetti's brilliant comedy, Don Pasquale. Heralded as the last great opera buffa by scholars and opera lovers alike, this was an opera written towards the end of Donizetti's career, and it was a hit from the night it premiered in Paris in 1843, spreading quickly to other cities and opera companies across Europe and North America. In fact, it made its North American premiere just two years later, in 1845, at the Teatro d'Orléans in New Orleans, Louisiana. This episode features playwright and stage director Albert Inorato as our lecturer, sharing fascinating details about the composer's life and relationships, and he really brings to life the musical elements that made this opera such a striking success. So without any further delay, this is Albert Inorato discussing Donizetti's Don Pasquale. With Gioacchino Rossini and Vincenzo Bellini, Gaetano Donizetti formed what is known today as the Belcanto School of Opera. That's a misnomer. They are more properly called Scuola di Prima Ottocento, the school of the first part of the 19th century. Bel canto is a vague term that can mean almost anything. Nor were these the only successful practitioners of Italian opera. Their rivals, such as Pacini and Mercadante, are mainly known to scholars today. But they were important in their own time. Still, Rossini, Bellini, and Donizetti were international composers whose works were celebrated all over Europe and even further afield in their own lifetimes. Rossini and Donizetti were prolific. Bellini, who died very young, was not. If we look at it as a contest, Donizetti might well win for works produced in a fairly short lifetime. He had as many as five new operas given in each of his most successful years and was always working on revising earlier works. Still, critical opinion has tended to rate Donizetti somewhat lower than his two colleagues. Rossini was admired by Beethoven and was imitated by almost everyone in his lifetime. He lived a long time, and though he gave up writing operas early, he remained a dominant force in musical life for many years. Bellini's three great successes, La Sonambula, I Puritani, and Norma, have remained in the repertory. But while Donizetti wrote operas that lasted beyond his lifetime, like Lucia di Lamamore, Le Lesito d'Amore, and Don Pasquale, he wrote so many other operas that it's hard to form a complete picture of him as a composer. Moreover, some of his thunder was stolen by the young Verdi. It was actually Donizetti who fought to bring romanticism with its violence, passionate love affairs, murders, and suicides into Italian opera and to free the form of the last conventions of opera seria. 
When Donizetti died at 51, having been mad for three years before, it was Verdi who benefited from his hard-won victories and, of course, gradually extended the vocabulary of Italian opera beyond even what Donizetti had dared. Their paths crossed. Donizetti produced Nabucco in what was its first production outside Italy when he was in charge of the Royal Opera in Vienna. In fact, from his letters, Donizetti emerges as a very nice person, a rarity in a world dominated by intrigue, factions, and dishonesty. He was born in Bergamo on November 29, 1797. His family was very poor. Later in life, when a success, he wrote, I was born underground in Borgo Canale. You went down cellar steps where no glimmer of light ever penetrated. And like an owl, I took flight, never encouraged by my poor father, who was always telling me it is impossible that you will compose, that you will go to Naples, that you will go to Vienna. Donizetti owed his escape to Johann Simon Meyer. Meyer was a significant composer in his own right, but also a born teacher. He had come to Bergamo after successes in Venice to found a school and succeeded in getting municipal funding, so tuition was free. Donizetti was in the first class, enrolled at eight years old. Meyer became his second father, or perhaps more truly, a real father to Donizetti. He never wavered in his belief in the boy and gave him an extraordinarily sound musical training that was to stand him in good stead in his years of turning works out sometimes to impossible deadlines. Italy was a very conservative society, but Meyer insisted his pupils study the then-radical music of Haydn, Mozart, and Beethoven. He was a member of a string quartet, and Donizetti often was in attendance at their meetings. So influential was this exposure on Donizetti that he wrote 16 quartets in a matter of months early in his career. When he felt he had taught Donizetti all he could, Meyer arranged for him to study counterpoint and fugue with Padre Mattei at Bologna. Mattei had been Rossini's teacher, and Meyer passed the hat to pay for Donizetti's lessons, starting by contributing himself. Bergamo was opera-mad, as were most cities in Italy. Though not that large a town, it had two permanent theaters by the time Donizetti was ten. The town was famous for its tenors, who included such magical 19th-century names as David, father and son, Andrea Nozzari, Domenico Donzelli, and important in the careers of Donizetti and Bellini, the great international star Giovanni Battista Rubini. Donizetti had some problems at the school. Singing was thought crucial, and his voice was complained of, so much so that the faculty rebuked him despite his talent in other areas of music. Then at 16, Donizetti began courting the ladies. He was so avid at this that the professors at school were shocked. Meyer needed to take radical action. He composed an opera. It was called Il Piccolo Compositore di Musica and was performed as the finale to all exams that year, so the faculty had to be in attendance. The little composer of the title was none other than Donizetti, who took the part and the opera was filled out by several other students, all performing under their own names. Donizetti got to show that his voice had changed into a passable basso, and he played some of his own music. He also got to deliver the moral of the story. Whoever is bold enough to discourage another's talent deserves rigorous punishment. The faculty got the message.
Eventually, Donizetti left Bergamo and, in fact, never looked back. Though he speaks affectionately of his family in his letters, he avoided the town as much as he could. It was a sad irony that he died there. Donizetti had a career typical for a young composer in Italy at the time. He had early successes as well as failures in Naples and Rome. The world was full of patrons and connected string pullers who had their own factions and enemies. He had to deal with impresarios who were often unreliable and downright dishonest. Finding good librettos was hard and expensive. On more than one occasion, Donizetti was to write his own text or improve the text he had been handed. And there were the pirates. Like every composer, Donizetti complained constantly about this practice. He was to find one of his Neapolitan scores being copied by men in the orchestra to sell to impresarios who would not then pay royalties. One industrious fellow not only played his violin, but copied the conductor's score in pen. The instrumentalists were chastised, but not much could be done about this. Then there were the star singers, especially the prime donne, who ruled with whims of iron. They made up to 20 times what a composer was paid, and they demanded their great musical moments, whether they made sense or not. They could rewrite the music to suit themselves or insert other music entirely. To one for whom he had had to rewrite a final rondo, he wrote perhaps with some irony that only my scarcity of talent has hindered my will to do better. Even with that letter, that particular opera, Zoraida di Granata, was not a success. The great writer Stendhal was in Rome and wrote that it was boring, despite the young composer's reputation. He also wrote, Donizetti is a tall, handsome young man, but cold and without a shred of talent. It seems to me that they applauded him before to give affront to the Princess Pauline who protected the young Pacini. Donizetti pulled off a sensation very quickly after that with an opera called Laio nell'imbarazzo. It was a comedy dealing with a father futilely trying to raise his two sons in ignorance of women. It was the first opera to show Donizetti's comic flair, but just as important, it shows his ability to enrich a comedy with sentiment and pathos. Later, in 1832, Donizetti would do the same with L'Elysir d'Amore. The touching tenor aria Una Furtiva Lagrima was his idea, as was the heroine's tender offer to buy her young man out of the military service her seeming indifference had driven him to join. Besides the prima donne, there were the censors. Italy was not a united country, but several kingdoms, and Lombardy, including Milan, was part of Austria. Donizetti was an Austrian citizen. Censors were very sensitive to anything that might suggest a rebellious nuance in a text. Working in the kingdoms of Naples and Sicily, as well as in Rome, sometimes created difficulties for him. In Naples, the censors were all-powerful, and they often interfered at the last minute to make impossible demands. Sometimes they worked hand-in-glove with the prima donnas. In Naples, Donizetti wrote Maria Stuarda, one of his operas that was rediscovered in the 1960s. It has a famous confrontation between two divas, Mary Stuart and her cousin Queen Elizabeth. At the first orchestral rehearsal in Naples, Giuseppina Ronzi di Benis, playing Mary, turned on Anna del Sere, the Elizabeth, 
Her lines started, Filia impura di Bolena, impure daughter of Bolin, obscene and unworthy prostitute, profaned is the English throne by your foot, vil bastarda, vile bastard. Well, Ronzi delivered those sentiments with such relish that Del Sere took them personally and attacked her rival, grabbing her hair, pummeling her with her fists, and even biting her. Ronzi, who was very large, fell under this onslaught, but was able to get up and attack Del Sere, who had to be carried home. The head censor demanded changes, and then the opera was not performed. The king banned it. Donizetti was to spend 16 years in Naples, where he essentially succeeded Rossini. He was familiar at the court and well-liked there, and was also professor of composition at the famous conservatory. But his position was never as easy as Rossini's had been. Because Donizetti was an Austrian citizen, he was regarded as a foreigner, and his motives often suspected. He had continual trouble with the censors, who had become increasingly conservative, Donizetti longed for subjects with scenes like that in Maria Stuarda, bold in passion, eruptive. I want love, violent love, he wrote. But, for example, when he composed Lucrezia Borgia, so great was the censorship that Donizetti had to keep changing the title to get performances in various cities. It was called Eustorgia di Romano in Florence, for example, or Alfonso Duca di Ferrara, Giovanna da Napoli, and Nizza di Granada. The work had a scandalous success at La Scala and was probably heard by the young Verdi, who was a student in Milan. He would use many of Donizetti's touches in Lucrezia in his early works. Donizetti was continually held back in Naples. He was also intrigued against by native composers who eventually blocked him from becoming head of the conservatory, a post he wanted badly. From an early age, Verdi was politically active and knowingly set texts with political implications. But Donizetti was apolitical. For example, one of his close friends in Paris was in exile, a fugitive from an Italian prison. On the other hand, Donizetti's personal agent in Paris was a counter-spy for the Vatican. Then there were the two impresarios from Paris Donizetti was desperate to meet. They actually hid from him in Rome. Only later did he find out they'd been arrested in Naples and banished. Given his position with royalty in Naples, they had thought it best for him that they not meet. Knowing the risks of taking stands, Donizetti sided with no one and kept politics out of his letters. By 1833, when he was 36, Donizetti was a mature composer. That was the year that saw the first performances of Il Furioso all'Isola di San Domingo, Parisina, Tasso, and Lucrezia Borgia. But one of the hardiest Donizetti operas was still to come. That is Lucia di Lammermoor, written in about six weeks in 1835. Donizetti had to deal with the Royal Commission for Operas in Naples, which was falling apart and which declared bankruptcy in the middle of rehearsals bringing things to a halt. Donizetti had recourse to the king, who guaranteed the pay of the singers, and the opera opened the season, a huge success. By then, Donizetti was a married man. He had met Virginia Vasselli when she was 13, waited for her to mature, and married her in 1828. There is an irony here, for when Donizetti went to Rome to propose, 
He became ill with a fever and convulsions. That was apparently one of the first indications of the illness that would kill him and his wife. Donizetti dearly loved Virginia, and it was for her sake that he stayed at Naples and hoped for a stable position there. But life is never simple. He never took her to meet his family, and he wasn't faithful to her. There was one cure for the torture of Naples for Donizetti. It was Paris. Paris was the center of the world for Europeans. Italians, who often grew up speaking French, were drawn to Paris by its freedoms and by the value of a success there. No city in Italy could compete in prestige, glory, or the amount to be made. Donizetti's call came in 1834. He was invited by Rossini to compose an opera for the Teatro Italien. Donizetti hoped this would be a calling card for the greater rewards of the opera. In Paris, the three titans of Italian opera actually worked together. Bellini was there preparing his I Puritani. He'd also been invited by Rossini. Bellini did nothing but intrigue against Donizetti. His letters are often paranoid. He was sure Rossini preferred Donizetti, whom he felt was intriguing against him. Bellini so hectored Rossini that the older man helped him with Puritani. Donizetti was entirely unaware of any of this. In his letters, he is nothing but cordial about Bellini. Donizetti saw the premiere of Puritani, which was a huge success. He would have the same stars, Grisi, Rubini, Tamburini, and La Blache, for his own opera, Marin Fagliero. It was well received, but not a sensation. In any case, after the first night, the Parisian fire marshals decreed that fire prevention in the theater be tested, with the result that the house flooded. But the company traveled with it to London, where again it was well received, but not the triumph Puritani was. But Donizetti was not through with Paris and eventually lessened his Neapolitan ties so he could spend more time there. His work habits were remarkable. He juggled projects for both the Théâtre Italien and the Opera, so much so that his French rivals were enraged. Donizetti was even attacked by the great composer Berlioz. But Berlioz was perhaps a little jealous of the sudden success of Donizetti. His nasty review, which touches on Donizetti's ease of composition, followed the opening of the sensational Fille du Regiment in 1840. By then, Donizetti was a widower. Virginia had had several miscarriages, then in 1837 she died at the age of 28. A cholera epidemic was raging, but from her symptoms it's now thought that she died of a severe syphilitic infection. It's likely Donizetti had unknowingly infected her. He was devastated. His friends took him to a house in the country where he was unable to get out of bed for several days. He could never bring himself to write or utter her name again and did not want anyone to mention to him that he was a widower. He closed the door to her bedroom and never opened it again. After Paris, Donizetti's career had one final chapter. That was to become Hofkapellmeister in Vienna, that is, head of music for the court. His success was to start with the season in Italian. He saved the company from a series of disappointments with Linda de Chamonix. Events didn't move fast enough for Donizetti, but eventually the court appointment came through. He worked intensely, pushing himself to compose. That despite failing health, increasing fevers, and other strange symptoms. By 1843, he is constantly referring to new illnesses in his letters. 
Around this time, it seems to have become apparent to Donizetti that he was suffering from syphilis. This was hardly a rare disease, and the onset of its final phase was well known. His excessive work during this period suggests that he realized what was wrong with him and that he wanted to compose as much as he was able while he still could. The last five years of Donizetti's life were a nightmare. At that time, there was no effective treatment for syphilis, and Donizetti essentially became mad, unable to function, and was kept in various asylums. There were intrigues over where he should be kept. His banker wanted him in an institution outside Paris. Others wanted him near friends in Paris. His relatives, especially his nephew Andrea, wanted to have charge of him and bring him back to Italy. People would visit to find he did not recognize them. The famous tenor Dupres, the inventor of the high sea from the chest, visited him and sang Tu che adios piegasti l'ali from Lucia to no sign of recognition from the composer. Eventually, it was agreed among the family and friends that he be moved back to Bergamo. The French police got involved in this, interning Donizetti and accusing the family of bad intentions. Eventually, though, Donizetti was moved. He died in Bergamo on the 8th of April, 1848. Don Pasquale was a product of those last feverish years of creation. Donizetti signed the contract in Paris on September 27, 1842. He chose the exile Giovanni Ruffini as his librettist, but in fact did much of the work himself. It was typical at the time, an older libretto was the source, but Donizetti decided to play the opera in modern dress, an unusual and daring decision. Donizetti hounded Ruffini over the text. He intended to use some of his older music, so the librettist had to fit verses to existing music at various stages, though eventually Donizetti did not do as much self-borrowing as he'd expected. He galloped through composition, so much so that Ruffini could not keep up. When he needed verses, Donizetti supplied them himself. He had actually already written the librettos for several of his operas and contributed texts to many more. Ruffini was enraged and withdrew from the project. This created a lot of confusion in later years since only the initials M.A. appeared as the librettist. That means Maestro Anonimo, Anonymous Maestro. But for many years, Donizetti's Paris agent, Michele Accursi, was credited as the librettist. In one letter, Donizetti boasted he had composed the opera in 11 days. In another, he said it was 10 days. That's actually not surprising. Donizetti was amazingly fluent. He was often attacked for that gift, especially in Paris, where composers could take years over their operas. Donizetti himself wondered at a certain irony in his working habits. He wrote, What I have done that is good has always been done quickly, and many times the reproach of carelessness falls on that which has cost me more time. In any case, what Donizetti meant is that he wrote the vocal lines in that 10 or 11 days. He would orchestrate during rehearsals, as was customary with Italian composers at the time. For all his haste, Donizetti took real pains over the opera. He sketched out many of the numbers before committing to a final version. The sketches of the beautiful tenor aria, Cercherò lontana terra, are actually very varied. If Donizetti settled the vocal lines in 10 days, he must have worked 20 hours a day. The opera was first given at the Théâtre Italien on the 3rd of January, 1843. It was a huge triumph, perhaps Donizetti's greatest success in Paris. 
Eight years earlier, he had been overshadowed by Bellinisi Puritani. But that was the work that was held up as the last in Paris to be so celebrated. Ironically, Donizetti had three of the Puritani Golden Age cast in Don Pasquale, Giulia Grisi as Norina, Tamburini as Dr. Malatesta, and Luigi Lavlache as Don Pasquale. Rubini had been the Puritani tenor, but his great rival Mario was the tenor Ernesto in Don Pasquale. The reception was most cheering, Donizetti wrote. The adagio of the finale to Act II was repeated. The stretta of the duet between Grisi and Lablache was repeated. I was called out at the close of the second and third acts. There was not one piece from the overture on that was not applauded. I am very happy. The place of acting and production in opera is still debated in some circles, but Don Pasquale was a theatrical as well as a musical event. The bass Lablache playing the vain Don Pasquale was a sensation for his acting. The entire company evidently formed a wonderful ensemble around him, with everyone up to the comic demands of the opera. One of the most powerful French critics told the story, how the elderly Don Pasquale disinherits his nephew and courts a young lady, and wrote, To receive this angel of youth and beauty, Lablache makes a most extravagant toilette, a superb wig the color of mahogany, with too many curls, a green tailcoat with engraved gold buttons, which he could never fasten because of the enormous rotundity of his figure. All this gives him the look of a monstrous beetle that wants to open its wings to fly and cannot succeed. The same cast took the opera to London in June of 1843. Henry Chorley, the most influential critic in England, wrote ecstatically about the opera and about La Blache. La Blache seemed especially to court favor by presenting the farce of fatness trying to make itself seductive. But throughout the entire farce, nothing was more admirable than his avoidance of grossness or coarse imitation. There was with him that security which only belongs to one who will risk nothing hazardous, but who is not afraid of daring anything extraordinary. And when I think of La Blache, I am tempted to feel I had parted company with real comic genius on the musical stage forever. It was a hit in Vienna, and indeed everywhere it was played. It was given in New Orleans on the 7th of January, 1845, its American premiere. The critical consensus was that it was the only successor to Rossini's Barber of Seville. Indeed, Donizetti was the last great composer to use the traditions of opera buffa, somewhat updated, and Don Pasquale is the last great opera buffa. There are great comedies by Verdi, Falstaff, and Puccini, Gianni Schicchi, but neither relates to the tradition in the way Don Pasquale does. Still, Donizetti's fingerprints are everywhere. The conventions are used with enormous fluency, but are changed as he needed. One choice he made involved recitative. In the old days, it was accompanied by keyboard, but in Don Pasquale, recitative is orchestrally accompanied with a marvelous fluency. And a great sign of Donizetti is the humanity of all the characters. No one is a type or a convenience for the story. Even when the heroine Norina disguises herself as the shy Sophronia, her underlying personality is never obscured. And throughout there are touches of pathos as well as wit that are actually typical in Donizetti's comedies but rare in buffa operas. The overture to Don Pasquale is a famous concert piece, a fantasia on themes from the opera. After an introductory flourish, we hear the tune of Ernesto's serenade in Act Three.
Then we hear the tune the vivacious Norina will sing in scene two. These are alternated with other piquant ideas that come with wonderful spontaneity. Don Pasquale opens unusually without a chorus or supporting players. Instead, there is an orchestral melody with a rocking motion in the cellos that suggest a very stout man pacing. This is the wealthy Don Pasquale, a well-upholstered soul in his late 60s, and he is waiting impatiently for his friend, Dr. Malatesta, and explaining how he has prepared a bitter surprise for his nephew Ernesto. Avanti, avanti. Malatesta arrives. He is a friend of Ernesto and has prepared a trick for Don Pasquale. But first he has good news. He has found Pasquale a young wife who is pretty as an angel and is wonderful in behavior. Bella, Malatesta spins an improbable portrait of this angel who is all things good and beatific. The old man is thrilled, especially when told that the girl in question is Malatesta's sister. 
when can this epitome of human goodness be produced? This very evening, Dom Pasquale literally pushes Malatesta out to get his sister and spins with joy. Now all that is left is for him to confront his nephew. Ernesto walks in at that moment. Don Pasquale reminds him that two months ago he had offered him a marriage to a rich, noble, and beautiful young lady, and that if Ernesto accepted her, he would have a handsome allowance and be Don Pasquale's heir. Ernesto has to admit that that's true. Once again, I offer you that young lady in the same terms. Do you accept? Ernesto cannot. His heart is given to Norina. He can't live without her. It's typical of Donizetti's technique that the recitative flowers for a second into melody at Amo Norina, I love Norina. Con una spiantata Rispettate una giovine povera Ma onorata e virtuosa But she's a pauper, cries Don Pasquale, who has never met her but has perversely taken a dislike to her. Ernesto defends her, but it's no use. Don Pasquale informs him that under the circumstances he intends to get married himself. Prender moglie. Ernesto is amazed. And Ernesto can just pack up and leave. Don Pasquale is throwing him out. This gives rise to one of those effortless, beautiful melodies Donizetti was capable of and also shows us the tender side of Ernesto, for whom this is devastating news. For he would rather lose Norina than see her in the poverty his being disinherited would subject her to. Sogno soave e casto, he sings, sweet and chaste dreams of my youth, farewell. Meanwhile, Don Pasquale grumbles underneath. Oh, <laughs> 
When he recovers himself, Ernesto begs Don Pasquale to seek advice from the honest and level-headed Dr. Malatesta. But he agrees. In fact, my bride is his sister. Ernesto is shocked. He had believed Malatesta his friend, and now he appears to be moving in on his old uncle. As is typical in this form, Ernesto gets a cabaletta, a contrasting fast piece that follows a slow one. Ernesto laments that fortune has made a beggar of him and that he has been betrayed by his best friend. In scene two, we are in a room in Norina's house. She's reading a book about knights of old and their shy damsels. She has a reaction to all the fainting in chivalry. She knows all the wiles of courtship and can do anything to thrill the men around her. And it's wise to be wary of her temper. Unlike those damsels of old, she does get mad, and then there's no stopping her for a few seconds. For she tells us that she has a good heart, and all her coquetry is in good fun. She's waiting impatiently for her friend, Dr. Malatesta. He'd mentioned something about tricking Don Pasquale, and she wants to hear more. 
A letter is delivered to her. It is from Ernesto, and she's upset about what she reads there. Malatesta turns up, and she hands him the letter. It is full of despair, the promise to leave Italy and all of Europe and go his lonely way. Malatesta reassures her. Seeing Don Pasquale so determined to marry has made him change his tactics. He has decided to pretend to go along with the old man. Malatesta has a sister in a convent, and he plans to disguise Norina as her and use her to disillusion the naive Don Pasquale. Malatesta will arrange a marriage. His cousin, Carlotto, will act at the notary, and he will find Ernesto and make him part of their plans. But she will need to be up for a real adventure. Norina has no hesitation. Pronta io son. I'm ready as long as I don't have to betray my true love, Ernesto. Malatesta reassures her that together they can hoax Don Pasquale and bring everything to a happy ending. But she needs coaching in just what she has to do. Malatesta must give her lessons. Do you want me fiera, haughty, she asks? No. How about mesta, sad? No, not that either. Should I weep, piangere, or gridare, scream? No, that's not it either. She must play la semplicetta, the simpering, cloying little thing. Narina knows those types very well. Your head must be drooping and you must have a bocca stretta, a tight little mouth in which butter wouldn't melt. Così, like this, asks Norina. Brava, that's it exactly, exclaims Malatesta. She even tries a few phrases. Mi vergogna, I'm so ashamed. And sonzitella, I'm just a dainty little thing. Oh, <laughs> 
With a little more rehearsal, they are ready to go. Vado coro a gran cimento, she cries. Let's run to the great test. He is as avid as she. They end the act with her curtsying everywhere, practicing to be la semplicetta for Don Pasquale. Act two starts with a beautiful introduction in which the tune of what will be Ernesto's sad aria is played by a trumpet, not quite in the same form. The sound adds an unexpected color of sorrow to the opera. Don Pasquale's house, Ernesto enters ready to depart for good. He still can't believe what he thinks is Malatesta's betrayal and already misses Norina. Cercherò lontana terra, he sings, I will seek a far land where I can grieve, but neither mountains nor seas will erase you, Norina, from my heart. He leaves. Don Pasquale enters, done up in what he thinks is a fashionable and flattering outfit, but which is overdone, to say the least. He tells a servant that no one is to interrupt once Dr. Malatesta and the person with him have come in. He flaunts his toilet, sure no one would suspect he's near 70. Dr. Malatesta enters with Norina, heavily veiled, disguised as his sister, Sophronia. She is all a-tremble and near a-faint, or so she acts. Malatesta brings her to meet Don Pasquale. Un uomo, she nearly screams. A man, let us flee. She's adorable, cries Don Pasquale. 
In a little trio, each has a reaction. Don Pasquale is thrilled already. Malatesta can't imagine it going better. And Norina, aside, sizes up Don Pasquale as an old fool who will be easy to take in. Being shy and naturally awkward, Don Pasquale gets his words mixed up, but he pays court to Sophronia, who curtsies low every time he addresses her. I suspect the young lady likes company of an evening, he asks. Nothing of the sort, she replies. At the convent we were always alone. Perhaps you like to go to the theater, he inquires. I don't know what that is, nor do I wish to know, she responds. Don Pasquale is thrilled. But how does she intend to pass the time? Oh, by sewing, cooking, knitting, and embroidering. She's exactly what I want, Don Pasquale says, and asks that the veil be removed. Of course, she refuses at first. She is trembling too much to trust her hand. Dr. Malatesta orders her to, and she does. Don Pasquale is overwhelmed by her beauty. He must have her in matrimony immediately. Does she consent? Barely able to control her voice, Sophronia agrees, while in an aside, Norina mocks the old man's excitement. As it happens, I have a notary to hand. I brought him just in case everything went well, says Malatesta. Don Pasquale wants to be married immediately. He commands the notary to come in. This is Malatesta's cousin, disguised. Malatesta reads the elaborate contract with many etceteras. Soffronia malatesta, domiciliate, eccetera, con tutto quel che resta. E d'altra parte, eccetera, Pasquale da Torneto, eccetera, eccetera, coi titoli secondo il consueto, eccetera. Entrati qui. Don Pasquale jumps in, commanding that his adorable soon-to-be wife is to have half of what he owns, and he orders that she be absolute mistress of the house inside and outside. Don Pasquale signs, so does Sophronia, pretending to be near a faint. Malatesta witnesses the contract, but there is a problem. There needs to be one more signature. At that moment, Ernesto is heard demanding to be let in. Of course, with its fluster and passion, Donizetti is making a sly reference to Lucidi Lamamor, where the hero breaks into a marriage between the woman he loves and someone else. It's good that you're here, remarks Don Pasquale. You can be our second witness. 
Ernesto looks at the bride and is shocked to see Norina. For the first time, Norina and Malatesta are worried about their plot. Malatesta is able to get Ernesto aside and tell him to play along. Ernesto is smart enough to listen and witnesses the marriage contract. He laughs at the very idea of Don Pasquale getting married, and his uncle throws him out of the house, but Sophronia steps in. It's really hard for an older man as stout as you to take a young lady out. I'll need an escort. He will do very well. And she takes Ernesto's arm. Don Pasquale starts to protest, but Marina tells him to be quiet. From now on, as per the marriage contract, she will give the orders in the house. Dr. Malatesta pretends to be stunned. She continues to say that, in fact, if Don Pasquale gets in her way, he might just get a swat. Don Pasquale is frozen in place. Donizetti makes a reference to a moment in the Act One finale of The Barber of Seville. There, Figaro sings Freddo ed immobile. He's frozen and immobile about Dr. Bartolo, who is also seeking a young bride. Here, Malatesta sings Er rimasto la impietato. He's turned to stone. Norina and Ernesto, who now understands the game, join in. Don Pasquale can only warn himself to be careful of the woman he's just married. Norina demands to see the servants. There are only three. That's impossible, she tells the majordomo that his salary is tripled and that he is to see immediately about getting more servants, the younger and handsomer, the better. Then, of course, they'll need two carriages. She'll let him choose the horses. And the inside of the house is too old-fashioned and must be redone. Don Pasquale explodes. I've been deceived, made to look like a fool. As the act ends, Norina continues with her demands. Malatesta tries to calm Don Pasquale, and Ernesto richly enjoys his uncle's dilemma.
It's one of the interesting aspects of Don Pasquale that Donizetti waits until the third act to deploy a chorus. They are, of course, the new servants Norina has hired overnight, and the act opens with them scurrying around. Norina expects her orders to be carried out presto, immediately. Don Pasquale tries to stop them, but they ignore him. Don Pasquale fears he is looking ruin in the face with all Sophronia's demands. And now he is aware from the carriage waiting outside that she is about to go out. He refuses to countenance that and determines to confront her. She enters, splendidly dressed. Where is she going? Why, to the theater. Your husband denies you permission. Why, when husbands talk, nobody listens. They fight over this, and he becomes so angry that he calls her a cividella, a little tart. Angrily, she slaps his face. His feelings are hurt, and he starts to see his end with this vixen, and even Lorena thinks she may have gone too far. This is another of those moments of pathos in the score. E finito, Don Pasquale, he sings. It's all over. You had best go and drown yourself.
But sorry as she feels for her pretend husband, Norina is still set on going out. She half apologizes to Don Pasquale by singing an utterly infectious waltz, Via Caro Sposino. Come on, little hubby, don't take things so hard. Think of your age and go to bed. All he can do is thunder divorzio. Divorce. She leaves, but makes a point of dropping a note at his feet as she goes. He picks it up. It's an invitation for Sophronia to come to the garden that night between nine and ten. Her lover will announce himself with a serenade. This is too much for Don Pasquale. He sends for Dr. Malatesta and goes off to lie down. The servants come on again and gossip about their employers. Actually, this is a lively little scene, which has two tunes in it. First, they complain about all the rushing they have to do. Then they wonder about Ernesto and his intentions about the mistress. They scatter, and Malatesta enters with Ernesto. They are agreed on how they will put an end to the farce later in the garden. Ernesto leaves just as the still outraged Don Pasquale enters. He tells Malatesta all about his fight with Norina, including the slap. Malatesta refuses to believe such behavior of his sister, Sophronia. But he has no choice but to believe the love letter. He pretends to be shocked. But Don Pasquale is all for a lynching. Malatesta has to calm him down. Don Pasquale has it all planned. They'll go with all his servants and attack Sophronia and her lover, at the very least summoning the sheriff. Malatesta suggests that just the two of them go to avoid the scandal. 
Don Pasquale isn't convinced. Malatesta tells him that he must protect his sister's honor in case this is just a misunderstanding. The two of them can hide so they can overhear what happens. If Sophronia proves unfaithful, then Malatesta agrees she can be thrown out immediately. Don Pasquale accepts this plan. He delightedly rubs his hands in anticipation of vengeance. Malatesta is thrilled the plan is going so well. So happy are both, they end up laughing at what they think of as an adventure. They sing in secco style while a tune bubbles under them before they explode in sheer joy. The final scene takes place in the garden. The romantic element that has been missing in the opera is supplied by two magical numbers. The first is Ernesto's serenade, Come Gentile, how lovely this night is and how wonderful it is to be near my beloved. The serenade is accompanied by two guitars and bass drum, with the offstage chorus imitating the plucking of the guitars. Marina slips out of the house to meet him, and they have their love duet. Tornami a dir che mami. Tell me once more that you love me. Tornami 
Don Pasquale and Malatesta carrying lanterns sneak into the garden as Ernesto sneaks out, going back into the house. The two men confront Sophronia, who indignantly denies that there was anyone there with her. Malatesta and Don Pasquale search the shrubbery and find no one. Don Pasquale still throws Sophronia out, and even Malatesta takes a firm line with his sister. In fact, there will be a new mistress in the house the very next morning, for Don Pasquale has agreed that Ernesto will marry Norina. Sophronia is shocked that such an awful person should be in her house, but it is no longer her house, for Don Pasquale will allow Ernesto a free hand, a goodly allowance, and above all, Norina. Seeing Sophronia so shocked thrills Don Pasquale, and he cries that Ernesto and Norina should marry immediately. Malatesta calls Ernesto from the house. He comes in with some servants. Malatesta gives him the news. Well, where is Norina? asks Don Pasquale. Right here, says Malatesta. Sophronia curtsies. At first, Don Pasquale is outraged by the deception, which Malatesta quickly explains to him. But even he has learned that a young wife can be a real menace to a man his age. And that is the moral of the story, as Norina, joined by everyone, sings in a delicious waltz. so much for listening to episode 22 of the Metropolitan Opera Guild podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, we hope you will take a moment to leave a comment or a review in iTunes or consider donating to the continuation of the podcast at metguild.org podcast. Our topic for next week is Mozart's La Nozze di Figaro, one of my personal favorite works. I just saw it last week at the Met with the most fantastic cast. It was probably the best live performance of La Nozze that I have ever seen. So be sure to tune in next Wednesday for our podcast episode that will be diving into the history of the opera's story and the musical language that Mozart uses. Until then, I'm Naomi Baratera, and thank you for listening. <laughs>